we pray. Amen. Looking ahead by looking up. And then obviously in that same phrase, seeing what's behind. Revelation chapter 1. You'll see why I'm going there. Israel, by what we would say contemporary border stats are, it's been compared to two U.S. states. I think that probably Vermont and like a fourth of Rhode Island would be best accurate right now to compare geotopically what land they actually have right now. What land they possess right now is actually not what God has given them. For in the Old Testament, when it was promised to them, you can read it from 12 through 15, there is substantially more. And in fact, Lebanon and Syria and Iraq are actually component parts, the majority of them, given to Israel all the way over to the Great Sea, the Mediterranean. They probably occupy only a tenth of what God has given to them. For a visual, we've looked at it before, it's about the size, a little bit larger than Montana, which is our fourth largest state. And it's kind of funny because when you start to look at what we have as states, you go, oh, yeah, that's big. Sort of. It is. On the contiguous states, that means the ones that are connected, the one that gets forgotten is Alaska because it's so far up there. But I shared this with you that on a cruise we took, just to give you perspective, we look at Texas and go, wow, Texas. But Texas isn't the biggest. Alaska is and Alaska has a sweatshirt that mocks the size of Texas. So on the Alaska shirt is the outline of Alaska, you know, with all of the little island groupings too. And then they've placed Texas kind of like right in the center of it. And the phrase on it is, oh, how cute, look at Texas. Because Texas is dwarfed by Alaska. In our world today, Israel is dwarfed by all standards and yet central on the world stage. It's no problem that God has chosen to operate through a people group that not only have been peculiar and in many ways able to exercise every negative attribute that we've ever exercised, they have been as a result of their disobedience, corrected severely throughout time and memoriam. And you and I get to look at that and going, man, I'm glad that's not me. And the thing is, you can be glad because of the season that we're in. And the season that we're in is that era of the church, which is grace. The reason I want to take you there is because God has his eyes on two places. It's that church where you're sitting now, you mean just exclusively this church? Well, I like to think that, but no, that church. We're a part of the family of God. We're a component part of the body. But Israel, can't get confused about that. He's not looking at America the beautiful. It is beautiful. And if you've ever driven across it, flown over it, it's magnificent. But I'm not sure that this America, what we've called the central contiguous United States, is more beautiful than Alaska. But I don't know. It's all, to me, an amazing work of God, 
and how he's put people groups and assembled them in areas that actually they were to do quite well at. Do you remember that in the beginning, there was a problem with people rather than moving by the Spirit of God to where they would find a place, they decided to become a conglomeration, a big, giant, whopping, industrial, spiritual conglomeration. That was Babel as a result of their disobedience and ultimately what they were able to achieve, which God looked down on and said, this is not good in what those guys are doing. And ultimately, language was confused and they were dispersed across the face of the earth. And in that dispersal as well, Genesis makes it clear from chapters 5 forward through Noah, but the judgment that would come was directly linked essentially to sin. And that's why when we come back to Israel and its size, God's not despising the size. But you need to know that when there has been intrusion, it's been in violation of God's covenant to Israel. So let's go back here in Revelation and in chapter 1. I just want you to understand what age you're in. What is this time frame that we're in and why is it at the same time so seemingly both alienating man against man, country against country, nation against nation, and it's creating disruption in my soul because I want a happy place. I want my happy meal. I want happy music. Why is it that I have to be in contention with peace? Well, you don't have to be. It's just that that's the way the enemy works, is to take your peace that was so perfectly directed by Dale, saying, God's given you peace. You're not at war with God, but man will be at war with himself. In chapter 1 of Revelation, it's a time in which John has basically pretty much exhausted his youth. He's an older disciple now, ancient perhaps by some terms. He's at least in his latter 80s, maybe 90s. He's been on this island, Patmos, which was essentially a prison. And he's there, and he's not in what it would appear today. If you visited Patmos today, it's a beautiful island, garden island. But back then it wasn't. It was a wasteland. It was here that God gave revelation to him with regard to himself glorified. That's what chapter 1 reveals is the glorified presentation of Jesus, so marvelous, so unexplainable, so awe-inspiring, that it comes out in imagery that you and I can't possibly appreciate. And that's one of the things that you need to know. There's imagery that Jesus gives of himself after having walked his tenure on earth as a man. And it is splendid beyond comprehension, but it's not to disturb us. We have to accept in faith that the voicing of John was trying to apprehend something of his language to describe the encounter that he had with Jesus. This is what we know as we advance from being introduced to Jesus, and this is John penning it, to some of the substantial things that you need to understand in these latter days. Concerning Israel, concerning the church, they are not perfect, the church is not perfect, but God has a perfect plan for both of us. There's an enemy who has endeavored 
from the beginning of time, when he was kicked out of heaven and took a third of the angels with him to disrupt the plan of God for salvation and redemption. That's a common understanding. If you know that area that's both described in Isaiah, it indicates that there was a battle. That Satan endeavored to magnify himself, to seat himself above God. God took him down. Guess what God's still going to do? He's going to be taken down. In the meantime, he will try to take you down. He will try to get you off course. He will try to twist your understanding of doctrine and theology. He will mess with your mind and your heart. He will invoke opportunities in which anxiety overwhelms you and you become depressed. And so instead of coming into a happy place to have a happy word, which anytime the word is given, it is a means by which we are to rejoice whether the theme is hard or good, it's a happy word. Because it's a blessed word, and that's what blessed means. Happy are God's people. Happy to receive the word. Blessed, if you read the word, and that's why revelation is important, because God says, if you listen to this word, you're going to be blessed in so receiving. Not understanding it, just to hear it talked about instructed through. As this fades in chapter one, what we see, and I'm going to march you through it really quick, is the church age presented in the personality of the churches. Every church presented here from chapter two up to chapter four has a personality that has been critiqued by the Lord, presented both with criticism, most of them except two. Those churches, the two, are the Philadelphian church and Smyrna. Smyrna is the persecuted and crushed church. They are without criticism by God. The Philadelphian church is a small, but very giving, generous, loving church. All the other ones have marks against them that God requires correction to them. And if they do not heed it, then there will be a sorting out of them. They're either with God or they're not. You guys are with God because I know how this church operates. You may not be as close to God as you want to be, but there's no reason you have to leave those doors with that ever being an excuse because it's a simple walk to the cross it's a simple movement to your knees. It's a simple decision you make to be baptized. It's simple to make your commitments in your life right now while the world is moving through events that are both cataclysmic and ultimately consequential. But in the long run, which actually we ought to say probably in the short term, is going to render the opportunity which the church is caught up into the heavens to be with the Lord. There are theological arguments. Well, do we have to go through some part of the tribulation? Well, you can if you elect to, and God's favoring you to do so. I want to be on the first bus out, which actually isn't a bus at all. It's just a blink. In one blink of an eye, those who have received the Lord in faith, you are transformed to be up in the heavens with the Lord. A word that's great back in the Old Testament is translated. 
you're no longer what once was able to be assessed of you or talked about you, you're translated. You have been regenerated in the manner by which you now received in the spirit and all the molecules that were being held together by the Lord here vaporize to bring you into the presence of the God, of the God who created you and you'll be perfect. You won't have left any parts afterwards. In fact, everything that you will be up in heaven is everything that your heart says you are here. The mirror lies because God sees you as perfect through Jesus. So here we go. We have seven churches. What is the first one? It's the church that is Ephesus. The reason that this is important, okay? The reason that it starts out here so that you understand his heart way over in Israel is because it's love, God loved you from the beginning. God's purpose was to establish a means by which you could commune with him in spite of sin and to have fellowship with him that is both ordained and blessed and empowered. The Ephesus church is corrected on several accounts, but the one that they get corrected with that should touch our heart is that they left their first love, which was whom? God. So the church, just like Israel, can leave its first love. These seven churches represent eras. The church era, or epochs, the marks by which these churches have manifested themselves in over 2,000 years, have personality, and they have historical presentation. In the history of the church, church didn't do so well, and some would say not super good right now. It's interesting that in what we could mark historically as the failure of the church, God sees us through Jesus, and it's only faith that he sees. Good for us. It's important to know that. It's important to know as faithful as the Lord is through Jesus to us, his bride, he is going to be no less faithful to Israel, his wife. That may be confusing, but in the Old Testament, Jehovah was considered as the God who looked upon a nation and confirmed in his heart, that's my wife. Jesus is the one who representing the Father on earth came for a bride. He's the bridegroom. And so both of these components have with it this covenant relationship that is marital. Important to understand. God's not going to get rid of Israel, his wife. The Lord Jesus is not going to get rid of us, his bride. It's all going to work out, but distinctly in an operation that's separated by events. We're in the latter day events, because the world is inevitably going to converge in its entirety against Israel, even though right now what you're seeing is a converging of support for Israel. How could that be? Because God's touching the hearts of nations that inevitably will be adversarial towards Israel. They're being touched because of the heinous crimes that were committed in violating the sovereignty of Israel, the manner by which the innocent were killed and by which even some still are being held hostage, the world in some manner 
and by the spirit, no doubt, had to face off. If that happened to me, I would be livid. That's happened to them. I am livid. What I've read, what I've seen posted, that is unacceptable. And so in this time, as it was back in World War II, there's sympathy. Even if on the whole, people find Israel a nuisance to the peace that is desired to be brokered over there, when it comes to the innocent, they're saying, this is unacceptable. So Israel's drawing themselves together under this internal as well as spiritual inspiration to be unanimous in consent. We will not surrender our children, our wives, our home, the land that God has given to us one more person or foot. We're not only taking a stand, we're going to move against evil and we're going to eradicate it. That's what you essentially need to understand. This is a warfare against evil. Are all the people evil? No. But those who have now the biggest voice and what we would call the intent of corrupted force, they do. And when it is evil, there are innocent people that will get hurt. That's not their intent. Love. That's what this church said essentially in the beginning. I love the Lord. I want to give my heart and my life to the Lord. And ultimately what happened, they left their first love. So the church is being drawn back to love the Lord, their God, with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. COVID was a terrible slap on the face, in my opinion, to God. It wasn't that he couldn't heal COVID. It wasn't that he couldn't deliver a people group. Satan got in government, and government got between the people and God. And so like sheep that were scattered, we scattered pretty good. There were some that didn't, but the consequence of it became then political. You don't trust the government. You don't obey the government. It had nothing to do with that. My position, as you remember, was this. The government is subordinate as one being governed by God who created the institution for civility. God is not the lesser institution through the church. And when there's a time in which the church is to obey God, then they turn and need to from man, from the agencies of men. Daniel knew that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Joseph knew it. There was a time in every person's life in which to demonstrate love, you turn from both vice and those who are endeavoring to turn you from God. And that's for victory. The church, seven of them that are covering what we would call eras, you need to understand, love has anchored them in this. The rest becomes the consequence of not returning. We can look at that. Eras. How does that play into another word? Errors. God's love will cover the errors 
of men, women, and children within the church, because he loves us, there is nothing that we can do that his love will fall short of. There is correction inevitably. But the love of God for Israel, the love of God for his bride, that church, will never be compromised by any means or standard that men try to pose against him. God's love is solid. By fear, the love of many will grow cold. Guess what you're not to do? Fear. Because God loves you, you are to fear him alone. That's different. That's the reverence for God. It's what you're doing here. You could have done anything else today. You came here to revere God. Whether you like me, whether you like the band, the coffee, the donut holes, it doesn't matter. I know that if you came in that door, it wasn't what you liked or didn't like. I'm content to say you're revering the Lord. Maybe we're the closest convenient place in which you could do it. Yeah, they play snappy music. They're very poetical, friendly. Pastors still got to work on sizing the message down, but I can tolerate it for another Sunday. But I'm coming to revere the Lord, my God, to hear the word, to have my mind changed about matters that I do not want to become one of them, one of the others, distant from God, the love of God. And secondly, or thirdly, if it's errors that are being spoken of, errors that are being covered, then man needs to understand eros is always lurking. Eros is the love that indicates the carnal appetite for anything that deviates a man, woman, or child from loving God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Eras of the church, errors within the church, eros, the seduction of the church. Moving the persecuted church, this is the church that gets commendation. Smyrna, do you feel persecuted? Probably not in the sense of what we know to be to death some nations indeed experience. And in particular, against a false religion and a very nasty expressive faith, Muslims. You have to understand there are some faiths that deserve no consideration, and that's one of them. They are godless. I don't care how many have become great commentators, seemingly great peacemakers. They can be in any venue in life, but Muslim as a faith, which is false, doctrine, which is evil, is counter to God, and they do not embrace the Lord God of Israel, nor the people of God, and they don't care about the church. You're seeing placement being given by them in great states, which I still cannot figure out. But in Michigan, I believe in Minnesota, I think Michigan is the one that has one of the largest both Muslim communities and indeed worship centers. They're popping up all over. God's intent wasn't wrong. He wanted a people group to have distinction in where they would be at so that they could be touched in the manner by which they needed to be. The amalgamation of culture, and in particular what it has done 
corrupting pure faith linked with a holy and righteous God is causing the problems. Paris has been inflamed. Most of Europe, England, jolly old England, their jaws are set and teeth are bared because the Muslims there are going out in solidarity for the Palestinians. Advancing on, it says the compromising church. This is the third one that's mentioned. This is to the church of Pergamos. You advance on, the corrupt church. This is the church at Thyatira. You have a loveless church, a persecuted church with commendation. You have a compromising church with correction. You have a corrupt church with correction. You move into chapter three, you have a dead church with a decision to make. When you got a dead church, there aren't many options available except for a burial. And hopefully that church will be submitting themselves to the burial waters of baptism to come out of their deadness and to leave behind what they have chosen to adhere to, be persuaded by. In verse 7 of chapter 3, you have the Philadelphia church. They were a faithful church. They come with commendation. In verse 14 of chapter 3, you have the lukewarm church. That's the dangerous one, too. It's very likely in some parts of every congregation there's someone that's just lukewarm about God. Just lukewarm. You're not hot. You're not cold. You occupy a seat, kind of like me when I was in my early 30s. Looked good, smelled good, did no good. I did do good secularly as a good teacher. I was not a disciple. If you knew the kids that you're seeing come to this church and become part of a collegiate ministry, learning discipleship and servanthood and ministry, they, in my opinion, are at the highest tier of commendation. They are most inspirational to me. And I've seen thousands of kids in my short life of 66 years. It's a real short life now. I'm most impressed because they're not lukewarm. And I'm, we got a phone call just the other day. It was a text, then Chrissy made a phone call. Another student heard us from some other place and is inquiring, can I come and be a part of this work? How's God doing it? Because I think that we're not lukewarm. I think we're on fire. I think the Lord's doing that. And guess what those young people become? They become really mature, effective middle-agers and senior citizens. But even before that, they become effective parents. And maybe even before that, they become really committed, single young men and women that will go the world over to answer the call of God or stay planted in the community and change the heartbeat. Wouldn't you love the heartbeat of this community to be changed by the young college that are coming in and just they're taking over every little nook that their talents and gifts have given them favor in by God. And the next thing you know, things aren't running like they once did. They're running smooth. People are becoming refreshed. Here's where we need to bring this into what is the reason 
for your hope, the looking up. Chapter four, after we have gone through the ages or the eras of time, some 2,000 plus years, God says, come on up. This is a picture you need to understand. It's a principle in picture linked together in this vision. But what's happening here is John is the ambassador of the church. He's actually a church pastor. And in chapter four, without argument, it's indicative of the time in which the church is called up. And then the things that right now you're hearing about and perhaps imagining it is become actually very understood. There's no Armageddon that's going to happen right now. Bombs and missiles and the strafing of bullets are going to happen, both captured and killed. That's going to happen, but this is not the Battle of Armageddon. The church is still present. We're effective, but we're also in the need of saying, Lord, which one of these am I? Am I a Philadelphian member of your body? And I'm a Smyrna man, Smyrna woman. Am I able to, in what is a difficult time, bring the best outcome for your glory in my life? Am I a Smyrna or am I a sniveller? Am I a complainer in the things that I'm suffering through? Or am I actually using it as a badge of honor, but in humility, people are clueless because all glory goes to you. Important to be anchored here because then as revelation unfolds, it says what the world system will do and it says what Satan ultimately will achieve. It does not include you, but it will include anybody that you know that has not made the confession of faith that you have. Are they done? No. It's just going to be a really difficult time because in order to be with the Lord and ultimately with you, they will have to make that decision that you made at some point in time that you love the Lord, that you have received him in your heart, that you have asked for forgiveness, that you've actually said, Lord, I receive his spirit indwelling in you. You're a marked man and woman by God in that moment, not your good works in the previous moments. Turn, if you would, to another anchor verse that's important. First Thessalonians, please. It really won't take long to get this out. But in chapter 4, this is an anchor verse concerning the times that we're in and why this should be comforting and why you need to be looking up, even though it's difficult to be looking down, either sorrowfully or trying to get the next news feed. We're all going to be struggling what's happening In chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. People are going to die. There will be sentiment linked with sorrow. It will be expressive. But this is a sorrow that does not establish itself in the fact that hope prevails. We will say goodbye to relatives and friends and we will hear hard stories. It could happen to any of us at any time. 
I've presided over enough memorials and funerals to know it's pretty much a given. It shall continue until the Lord brings us out. But for me, my comfort and to deliver it to people is that they're with the Lord. When their eyes closed, they were translated and they were with him. And I will speak that to them so that they can sorrow in sentiment, but not bewail the transaction that God has permitted and ultimately is rewarding them in. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And this doesn't speak about the doctrine of soul sleep. That's a whole nother thing that's bogus. You're not going to be in a blankie and chewing on something and a little noogie while you're waiting for God to do his thing. You're with him. To be absent from the body is to be present with him. I don't know how that all looks. I just always laugh when I feel that in Riv studies, he dial it down to one billionth of a second is the twinkling of an eye, which 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I believe, will tell you how fast it is. And it says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, you alive? We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. People have got to precede you in sleep. It means death. The only advantage that they have is they come up first. But I don't know how you divide the twinkling of an eye one billionth of a second. I think you ought not worry about whether your tennis shoe is tied or whether you're coming out of a shower because it doesn't matter. You're changed in the twinkling of an eye. There's no uniform that you'll leave behind here that will be necessary in heaven. You just go. Perfect and accommodated in his presence. And verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Graves will be opened. It'll be explained away, probably as an alien abduction, or the earth just barfing out the Christians that needed to go anyways. Whatever, there'll be an explanation. God's giving you the explanation right now. He's getting what he put together in origin. The sea will give up their dead, the land, the rivers, the sky. Everything will give up their dead in Christ who rest. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We're to be looking up. Where does this take us now? Looking ahead, looking up, seeing what's behind. I want you to visit with me very quickly. 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, look at verse 50. I'll pick it up there. 1 Corinthians 15. And so now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Can't inherit the kingdom of God. If we're believers, we are on a maintenance program that honors him. And when there's dishonor, we say, Lord, 
thank you for your mercy. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for making me whole again and being a part of the body. That's it. That's the transaction. If you're a parent, you know how meaningful it is when your kids take the assertive step to say, Mommy, Daddy, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And your heart melts. And the next thing you know, you're seeing Mommy roll dough and make cookies because they're celebrating the confession of sin and restoration is right around the corner. And it's not one cookie, it's the batch. Dad gets the one cookie, but the kid gets the batch of cookies. And so in this, Paul is simply saying, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Some of us will not die. In this room, in this era, the church members will not die. You'll be translated. You need to understand that. It's a real truth. Paul saying, both in 1 Thessalonians and in 1 Corinthians, I don't want you to be tricked. Even though there's wars and people dying and it's ugly, you'll know my word because the tombs will be empty and in the twinkling of an eye, you're going up and you're meeting the Lord in the air. And until that event happens, then all you're seeing right now is a prelude to this event. The times have to be where the enemy is at bay and God is ready to suspend grace in order to bring judgment. It is not appointed for the innocent, for the believer to experience God's wrath. It is not about nations against nations. It will be the world system fighting against God over Israel. So when you see it, you then go back to the past. Here's your past. This is the date you remember. May 14th, 1948, in which Jesus said, when you see the budding of what? The fig leaf, the fruit on it, the budding of it, then you will know that that generation shall not pass away. Until it's proven differently, in my opinion, Jesus gave us a stopwatch. And that generation has not passed away because I'm one of them. I'm a 1957 guy. That means for me, I'm going to bank on the fact that while I draw a breath, I've got a few more years to potentially see the reality of the Lord's return. You can gauge it on 100 years. You can gauge it on 50, 75. Men have tried to predict it. All I know is that God said it. We are that generation, in my opinion. And some of us may be privileged to live extraordinarily long lives. Not 70, but 80, 90, maybe 100, that the word of the Lord may come to pass in what it is we saw what was notated. It's very short in the time that remains. And we need to understand that God wants us to not be confused about it. This is looking back. This is the picture that God gave. But it goes back even further, and you can read it in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, when he spoke to a man who was highly paganized, highly influential, to gather his belongings and go to a land that he would be shown. That was Abraham. Twelve was the day that he was spoken to. The rest of the book of Genesis unfolds up to 22, in which in pilgrimaging with God, 
not having advantage of being better than you and I, except obedient. Are you obedient? Then you've got the heart of Abraham. And that means that God can count on you to do anything that he is requiring of you. And the one requirement is, can you follow my son? That'd be awesome. Follow Jesus. That's where your life counts. You can't count on everything else, but you can count on him. And then guess what? He says, because you're in the church, it goes on an account. Because you're investing in God, then the treasury of the Lord is essentially yours. That's not prosperity teaching. It means that where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You have a problem with your heart? Put your treasure in his work. There your heart will be. You want to get close to God? Then be generous in the giftings and the talents that God has given to you. As Abraham was both gifted in and he left with a treasury from Egypt. The world system may be to you God's oyster. But I know this. Without the tomb, it simply would be a dead shellfish rendering nothing but stench. Jesus came out of the grave, no decay, no stench, didn't need the aloe and the frankincense and myrrh, did not need the olive oil, cosmetic. He would have smelled like a little baby. He never experienced corruption. Brutality, yes, bleeding immeasurably, but he did not stench, not at all. He conquered death, and he arose in life, and that's what he's promised for you and I. As you keep an eye on Israel, the time clock started with them. Don't be discouraged about what's going on. Pray for them. Pray for our ministry teams that are there. It's good to get a report, but things could change like that. I don't doubt that there's a missile that couldn't strike the Golan Heights. What I do know is force has been dispatched to protect the land that God has given to them. In their heart, they know they're worth more than Vermont and a little chunk of Rhode Island. In their heart, they know that they're bigger than Montana. In their heart, they know that Syria and Lebanon and Iraq to the Mediterranean and a sliver of Egypt and Jordan is theirs, and they've been kind to relent. But every area that they take on beyond that, it's theirs. It's squatters that are on God's land. They own it. And they are a reasonable people, but they are tired of the assault of corruption. And we need to as well say, as Americans, most importantly as believers, we're tired of the corruption. We want to be whole.